Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Matthew Dasty, author of Vatsyayana's Commentary on the Nyaya Sutra, a guide, published in 2023 by Oxford University Press as part of its Oxford Guides to Philosophy series. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so before we dive in, I just want to make a little note here about this uh, interview. I know a lot of the folks that I interview on the podcast just because of the nature of of academic philosophy, but Matt and I are um, a little different situation in that we talk to each other like about what, twice a week, is it, Matt? at least, um, and in relationship to the topic of this podcast, which is the Nyaya Sutra, we've been reading through the, the uh, Vatsyayana's commentary and some of the other commentaries for the past few years together. So for that reason, it would be a little artificial to, to take this interview, like some of my others, a little bit more formally. So it'll probably be a little more conversational than some of the, the usual ones. So anyway, with that little note out of the way, let's, let's dive in. So so Matt, your book is a guide to Vatsyayana's commentary. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Vatsyayana and Nyaya philosophy, could you start by just introducing us to who Vatsyayana is and at a big level, high level, what Nyaya philosophy is? Sure. So um, one, of the, uh, one of the interesting findings one encounters when they start to engage with classical Indian philosophy is that what you have around the turn of the common era, precursor traditions of various sorts that begin to get, they become coalesced and they become refined and they become in effect distinct schools. There are indeed uh, brilliant savants and individuals who are sometimes hard to place in a school. That's completely true. But on the whole, you find, uh, as a general rule, thinkers work within a tradition, even if they reform and even if they're quite independent, uh, independently minded. So Nyaya is one of the uh, important flagship schools of classical Indian philosophy. Uh, the word Nyaya can mean a rule um, or a methodology even. Uh, sometimes scholars even translate Nyaya it, it, uh, as logic. It's a bit of a over-translation, but understandable contextually. Um, and so the Nyaya school is, uh, to use a, a difficult word, a, a Hindu tradition or Vaidika, one that, um, what does that mean? Well, it means they're in classical India, they're not Buddhists, <laughs> and they're not Jainas. And the Nyaya tradition is one that sees its cultural inheritance coming from the Vedas and the Upanishads and the cultural norms that even if they're not really practiced uh, robustly by some of the people in the later Nyaya milieu, they honor the Vedic culture, so to speak, as as their ancestors, you might say, conceptually, religiously, stuff like that. So, but, so that's all a bit of a kind of background um, in terms of actual philosophical holdings. Um, in some ways, again, this is all loose and approximate, but uh, I think about Nyaya a little bit like a, a ancient, ancient Indian Aristotelianism to some degree. Uh, Nyaya defends a realism that, that, that uh, much of the world uh, exists independently of consciousness, um, and uh, they're quite concerned to push back against um, 
um, both skepticism and idealism. Um, Nyaya does have a categorical or categorical metaphysics, which it adopts from a sister school, Vaisheshika. We don't need to necessarily get into the distinctions between them, but at the time of Atsyayana, they're basically the same practically. And I mean, but that's a longer discussion. Um, and Nyaya, um, what, what often makes Nyaya interesting <clears throat> to modern thinkers, people like you and me, uh, is that they were robustly analytic and robustly concerned with um, uh, very precise and careful defense of their metaphysical and axiological and epistemological holdings in the court of philosophical dispute. And so they are very self-conscious about epistemological justification. They're very careful to catalog uh, objections by the, the leading interlocutors of their day. And so um, they're, they, they, they do what they do looks a lot like the sort of things that we tend to think of as uh, good philosophical work. Um, and so that's all a, a little bit about it. I think I can get more into it if we talk about like what's special about Vatsyayana, maybe some of his project. But the short story then about who Vatsyayana is, first of all, he's not the author of the Kama Sutra. If you did a search for Vatsyayana, you'd probably find that. Um, but um, but Vatsyayana, it, well, first of all, it, it's not easy to find a lot of data on these thinkers because of the way that uh, classical, like Shastric Sanskritic work, or like uh, by Shastric, I mean basically technical treatises, whether about whether philosophy or other things, you don't get a lot of biographical information for the most part. So we don't have a lot about Vatsyayana as a person. We, we're pretty confident that he lived in the first half or maybe even first quarter of the fifth century CE. And uh, Vatsyayana, his work, which we call the Bhashya, or we could just call the commentary for the purposes of this conversation, <clears throat> uh, is a commentary on the Nyaya Sutra. Now, would it be useful to talk about what sutras are, Mel? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> why, don't, why don't you briefly explain what a sutra is, and then we can talk about your background and things like sure, that. Sure, yeah, 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 sure. So, um, and I invite you to uh, add to whatever I'm saying, if, if you are inspired. But so uh, the word sutra probably is something that people, even if they haven't engaged with Indian thought, have heard that term. But uh, a sutra uh, in, in classical India is basically a concise statement and a sutra work like the Nyaya Sutra or the Yoga Sutra or the Brahma Sutra is a work which collects a handful of these such that you have, in effect, an overview of a way of thinking that you could basically memorize, let's just say, 200 to 400 of these sutras, and then you have an entire work at your fingertips. And the way we, t we tend to understand what probably happened in the ancient world was that a student would, in the presence of a living preceptor, memorize the sutras while learning from the preceptor all the philosophical content or intellectual content that can be hung mnemonically on that sutra. So by the time you're done pedagogically, you could have a remarkable amount of understanding and, and, and information that you've now uh, mem that you now have in your mind simply by memorizing the sutras along with a 
spoken commentary or explication. So, but what happened in the course of history is that people would write commentaries to unpack the sutras, to explain them. And basically, each generation of commentators on a text like the Nyaya Sutra not only try to unpack the content of the sutras, they then unpack the content of the prior commentators while reacting and responding and dealing with the the uh, opponents, so to speak, of their day. So they might sometimes anachronistically reread sutras to have the tools to account for this new objection or this new issue. But it's not always anachronistic either. It's kind of like sometimes it's the way in which historians of philosophy like you and me try to think of, well, how would they respond and get in the head of the ancients? Well, they do that too with the Nyaya Sutra, so to speak. Um, so Vatsyayana was the first major commentator on the Nyaya Sutra. Uh, and as such, his influence on the tradition of Nyaya is as arguably as much as the sutras themselves, because in, in many ways, the self-conception of Nyaya as a school of thought um, really uh, can be traced to his way of articulating it, really in the introduction to this commentary, but also throughout the entire work. So how did you come to be interested in Nyaya philosophy in general and in writing this book in particular on Vatsyayana? Um, it, it's it's kind of a long story. I'll try to summarize, but... Um, uh, w- one thing that one thing about my experience as a young when I was a young person interested in philosophy, which is very different from my own students, is that you know when I was fourteen, I would ride my bike to the used bookstore and just look at the shelves and kind of be fascinated by all of these opportunities and possibilities. Then I would just buy a few, uh, quite f- for very little money, bring them home, read them, and so learning in that way is quite eclectic, uh, but also it's fun as you tease out these various walkways of, of intellectual growth. Short story is, I probably, my hunch is, the first book on Indian philosophy that I read was the translation of the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Prabhavananda and Christopher Isherwood of the, from the Ramakrishna Mission uh, with the really interesting uh preface by Aldous Huxley, where he kind of gives a synopsis of the perennial philosophy. So in many ways, that experience, it was very formative to me. And so like many people who have an interest in Indian thought, at least in the beginning, it was the kind of Vedantic, yogic, with a little bit of forays into Buddhism sort of stuff, um, not, not having a real sense of significant like doctrinal divisions besides you know big picture stuff. And so when I found myself, and, and I continued in that way and, 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 and such, but when I, when I was in college at Rutgers University, um, I was lucky enough to have a professor there named Robert Bolton. And he was basically the in-house expert on Greek philosophy at, te- at, at Rutgers. And he was very generous and he took me under his wing in certain respects and invited me to take a graduate seminar on Aristotle and understand and engage in the kind of scholarship that I would be doing should I go to graduate school in philosophy, which I plan to do. And I told him that I, I want to do Greek philosophy, which is one of my passions, but I also am interested in Indian philosophy and I don't want to let that die. 
I was lucky enough also to take courses on Indian philosophy with Edwin Bryant at Rutgers. And Bolton just, uh, he said, well, you know, some, there was a guy from the University of Texas at Austin who gave a talk here about a year or so ago. And so if you go to Texas, you have a, a world-renowned department an ancient, uh, a, a, a world-renowned uh, like group of specialists in ancient Greek philosophy, but you could also do serious work in Indian philosophy, and that made me exceptionally excited. I did end up going to Texas, had a great experience there, and so working with Stephen Phillips, the guy who gave that talk, which I think at the time was a talk. If I, I tried to piece it together, I think the talk he gave at Rutgers was about fallacies in India. I think, which may come back to the end of our chat here. <laughs> but, um, but, but, um, but working with Stephen, um, he at the time was finishing up uh, his first book on Gungesha, a great late Nyaya philosopher. And I started reading Nyaya with him. And at the same time, and I think this was probably your experience, I, I really benefited at Texas from a culture where the professors in my various courses when I was doing my coursework, almost all of whom were analytic philosophers, they were very encouraging to say, hey, take your passions and interests in Indian philosophy, find a way to bring it to bear, but in a way that really speaks to the course. Like It's not going to be an alternate track. It's going to be engaging seriously with the themes of the seminar. And uh, in that sense, I found Nyaya a natural partner for a lot of the things I was doing in epistemology that I was really interested in and the epistemological nature of testimony, for example, epistemic justification in general and, and things like that. And so I found Nyaya really compelling because I thought, wow, th this is really a rich vein of philosophical reflection that is certainly known to specialists in Indian thought, but it, it was not an uncommon experience to talk about my term paper with these professors who would say something like, this is really remarkable. I never realized how much was there sort of thing. And so I just got more and more excited about Nyaya for a lot of reasons. One, which we may get to as we go deeper into Vatsyayana, is Nyaya and especially under Vatsyayana's interpretation of, of the school, tries to unite the kind of contemplative engagement that it inherits from the early yoga Upanishadic sort of schools with rigorous critical thinking. And I found that really attractive because I did find myself frustrated with some of the limitations of the the kind of mysterious interpretation of Indian philosophy, which was a bit popular uh, uh, and such. So that was how I got interested in Nyaya in grad school. My PhD, uh, my, my um, dissertation was about Nyaya's theory of knowledge and how they deploy it to solve metaphysical disputes. And I, you know, I, I'm the kind of person who has, I have a, uh, I have a historian's mindset where I don't feel comfortable studying a thinker seriously who's relying on earlier works without reading those works and understanding them first. So I found myself my first few years 
once I got out of grad school and I was now in my home department, really just trying to understand early Nyaya, the Nyaya Sutra, the Vatsyayana Ujyotakara, Vajaspati Mishra, just trying to take them very seriously uh, and understand what they were doing. And I found that to do that right takes a long time. And so I found without really making an official decision about it, really the last decade of my life was mostly focused on that in terms of research interest, interests. Out of that came the select translation of the Nyaya Sutra and the early commentators that Stephen and I did together and other papers and things like that. So that's part of the background, how we get here. The other kind of formative uh, experience that led me to this was in the, uh, uh, I guess, early 2010s, uh, or a little bit after 2010, I should say, um, Gennard and Ganeri let some of us know he was putting together a, a, a massive edited volume on Indian philosophy. And he, he asked me, why don't you write about Vatsyayana? Or, and I said, all right. And so that started me thinking about Vatsyayana as a systematic thinker. And that, in some ways, that article set the trajectory for what I wanted to do with this book. And uh, one thing I saw in that writing that paper is the sort of thing that people sometimes encounter with, let's say, Aristotle, where you can't really separate his ethical or metaphysical works entirely from things that seem tangential, like his biology, right? There's ways where you'll find these nuggets of, of insight in apparently tangential contexts. And with Vatsyayana, that's absolutely the case, that um, you won't really be able to answer questions about his positions unless you read the entire Bashya slowly, carefully, and many times. And so that was something I was engaged in uh, after writing that uh, paper for Gennardin's volume. And so then, so let's say cut to around the quarantine time. So that's when you and I, for example, thought we should read Sanskrit and kind of we got started doing that regularly. And at that time, I, I had, I got tenure and I forget if I had full professor or not yet, but I said to myself, look, take a little time just to read because I'm at a intense, fairly intensive teaching school. So I have a pretty significant course load. So when I'm working on a research project, it's pretty much all consuming. And I thought, just, just, there's nothing that's going to make me say yes to a new project. I took a kind of vow. And then a month or two after that, <laughs> I got an email uh, from Jan Westerhoff just as a feeler. What do you think about this kind of book? And it was literally the one project that I, I was like, I have to do this. I've been spending a decade of my life to be in a position to do this well. And it's also something where... It was very gratifying to see that in this new initiative, OUP, they wanted Indian philosophy, and I knew I could do it. And it was exciting to kind of give me an opportunity to put a lot of the things I'd been thinking about, in effect, for a decade into a book. So I, uh, I enthusiastically said yes and put it together, and so that's that's how we get here. All right. Well, you know, can yeah, I say one more thing yeah, about please, that? Yeah, please go ahead. Um, is one of the cool things about doing Indian philosophy in the modern academy is, aside from our own scholarly and philosophical growth and adventures in digging deeper and deeper into this, 
like fascinating um, arena of philosophical development is that we also have this kind of this is not the right locution, but you have a kind of like a missionary zeal. Like this is so important. I want people to know about this. And so my disposition is um, I get frustrated when there aren't good materials for philosophers who want to learn about it, about whoever the thinker is in question. And there's kind of like, there's a kind of like uh, virtuous mean where it's not merely a scholar telling you what they think, because we have enough of that for the most part, nor is it a translation, pure translation, which is so like, quote unquote, faithful to the original that only specialists can read it anyway. And so my my kind of, my disposition as a teacher forces me in a way that I think is ultimately useful, that I want to communicate this effectively without blurring important distinctions while also giving people access to the primary materials. That was absolutely the ethos for Phillips in my translation, but that also was the ethos for this volume where there's a lot of translation, there's a lot of close textual engagement. But I'm also trying to map out the secondary literature for someone so that they could navigate it without being utterly bewildered. So I don't know, that's a little yeah. bit of background. Yeah, that's helpful. So, I mean, we, we can dive, dive, we can dive into the, the text now a, a little bit, dig, dive. Um, and as you say, it does include snippets of your own translations throughout. Some of, of them are yours with, with Stephen, the previously published, and some of them are, are your own. So as you're guiding us through the, the text in this book, you are, you're always drawing our attention both to the text itself. And then like you're saying, you're sort of zooming out and you're saying, okay, here's some controversies and, and you have some nice guides to the secondary literature, uh, which maybe we can talk about your appendices at the end too. So, so big picture then like structure of the book here, it's divided uh, aside from the appendices, which uh, so it has some interesting stuff in it, um, guides for teachers and an appendix about um, uh, a paper by Brendan Gillen. Uh, there's basically five chapters and you've keyed this to the chapters in the Nyaya Sutra, which are called um, daily lessons, right? So maybe could start a little bit about the structure of the book, uh, your book and the, the Nyaya Sutra as the Basha interprets it. How is this structured? Why is it structured in this way? Why are these daily lessons? First of all, I... I don't like the word daily. I almost just, I just, as you notice, if, if I just translate them as part, because like part one, part two or whatever, no one has that. There's no way in a day you would capture whatever they're trying to convey. Right. You're not, we shouldn't read your book uh, day by day. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. If, if you want it to sink in. But um, so um, for the sake of our conversation, when I say the commentary or the bashia, that just includes the Nyaya Sutra within it because we don't need to really make a radical distinction. In fact, in my opinion, like treating them as a coherent single text is the easiest way to navigate this. Um, the Bashya in many ways unpacks, organizes, and provides guiding uh, interpretive strategies for the sutras. And of course, the commentary itself depends on the sutras. So they're, they're very, they're organically related. So I'll just say commentary and, and we'll understand it means the sutras too, if that's okay with you. Um, so the commentary has five books. Now 
the Nyaya Sutra is organized around 16 principal topics. And those topics, if you just read the list, might seem like a sort of grab bag of things. But if we want to see them from a kind of uh, big picture perspective, there's really four major categories. Uh, there's epistemology, pramana theory and such, metaphysics, the famous categories of Nyaya and other things like that. Um, there's um, dialectics, which is the discussions about fallacies and proper investigative procedure, you might say. And then there's value theory. There's discussion where that's where the discussions of contemplative practice and how that relates to philosophical investigations, as well as defenses in a big picture of some of the things that as, again, not a really useful word, but it's out there as the kind of Hindu tradition that Nyaya wants to defend against the criticisms of Buddhists and others and ancient Indian materialists. So really those four, epistemology, metaphysics, dialectics, and value theory. Um, and the sutras are, and the, and the Bhashya are very, pretty coherently organized where in effect, the first chapter gives an analysis of each of the 16 topics, as well as some supporting argumentation. For example, one we might talk about in a few minutes about the self, for example, when it discusses the self, Vatsyayana then, and this is his, in my opinion, like his genius as a creative commentator is to take a su the sutra, which has a fairly simple way of distinguishing self from non-self, you might say. And Vatsyayana then offers uh, a sophisticated argument for why selfhood is an irreducible facet of reality. Um, and so, so anyway, the first chapter does that. It's a bit of an overview. Second chapter is devoted to epistemology and philosophy of language. Third and fourth chapters go through all, basically metaphysics and value theory. Fifth chapter, dialectics. So that's the structure of the entire book. Now within that, yeah, sorry. Do you want to follow up? Or that's I, I was just a little curious, you know, maybe riff on this if you want, but um, these are some divisions that, that we have in analytic philosophy. And I think sometimes one of the challenges in books like your, your writing and the one that you did with Stephen is mapping these onto what's going on here. Because one of the things that um, struck me as you were saying about, you know, the the discussion is about epistemology in chapter two, which is right. But then under, for instance, the perception sutra, which I've been talking with you about recently, we get all this discussion of myriology of parts and wholes. Right. Um, so I don't know, maybe can you speak to that a little bit? How, how Nyaya is a conversation partner for analytic philosophy, sure. but also sure. challenges us in these ways. Well, right. Maybe first with a kind of textual point, the, the sutra format is one that, it often tracks ancient debates and um, preserves them. And so although you might like, one might think of sutras as a way of like uh, these, these again, short, concise statements, they're not all just like declarative sentences that unpack, like here's all the things that are true or something like that. There's some of that, but then it, it, it brings up, well, here's an objection to this. And so they're, they're saved there. So, right. So there is a, a kind of, there's very much a dialectical flow of the commentary. And that's one reason why, for example, I say in the 
beginning in the kind the introductory matter to the book that a book of this sort could be done as could be read as a kind of economical way of not reading the original right which i understand people only have so much time but my hope would be that people will be inspired to read the original because following that dialectic is really an important part of engaging with the text so it it goes back a little bit to what i was saying about how you can't really you can't get a comprehensive understanding of Atsyayana by just taking one snippet that seems to be all he's saying about, let's say, epistemology or something. So, for example, the perception chapter, uh, the, sorry, the, the section on perception in chapter two uh, encounters objections about um, how much of perceptual experience is something that we, in effect, put together mentally as opposed to what's given to us in experience. Old discussion, still happening, right? And so uh, Nyaya's argument is that we actually have the capacity to directly perceive composites and in, in effect take them in from the world. So what that, and so in that context, the, an objector will then put pressure on the notion of a composite whole as real. And then we get to that discussion. Now, just as a sidebar, that's one interesting thing about Nyaya that you could say that Nyaya is empiricist, which I think it is. But the reason it doesn't collapse into idealism or phenomenological kind of like like non-committal, a non-committal stance about the external objects of perception is that Nyaya has a lot of confidence in perception's capacity to take uh structured objects from outside and capture them. So in that sense, Nyaya's empiricism is incredibly robust. And it defends that, by the way, as you know. Um, it's not just something that they say this is true. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I riffed yeah, a bit. I don't know yeah, if that that's, helped. That, yeah, that's, that's helpful. I was just thinking, too, about the 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 way of sort of carving up these kinds of categories. I mean, I guess it does map onto pretty straightforwardly in some ways, you know, metaphysics yeah, well, and epistemology. Yeah, well, that, but... for sure. And, well, you know, part of the day, it's, it's one of those cases where in some ways, like I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, it's interesting watching the history of modern scholarship on Indian, let's say logic or Nyaya logic, where, you know, people use the tools available to them. People you use the conceptual toolkits which they are familiar with, and so in that sense, you know we have people trying to, you know, look at like just use categorical logic to interpret the so-called Indian syllogism, right? Predicate logic, things like that. And so, what I try to do, at least when I do those sort of things, is do them with a light touch, and 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 be very clear that. Um, Look, this is a tool which works, but um, not to say that other tools may not be more effective. Even things like so, I you know, in this book, but also in earlier works, I've tried to lean into both a pragmatic and disjunctivist interpretation of of Vatsyayana's epistemology, and I think straightforwardly both of those terms are accurate. But the danger with that is I've seen then people say, well, no, it's not. And then they use like one version of disjunctivism, which I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm really speaking on a certain level of generality. That's just part of the way we negotiate the use of concepts to translate, of, you know, analytics in this case, concepts to translate Indian thought. So 
I think it's important to do, but I also think if you try to make it too rigid, you'll find that your scholarly work becomes dated very quickly. Right. Right. So two things to pick up on there. One, I want to maybe go back to chapter one, since you mentioned pragmatic and disjunctivist approaches to epistemology. I think that'd be good to pick up on the the core idea of epistemology there, but just the sort of metaphilosophical issue. Um, it sounds like, you know, part of the issue is if, if you tie your, your disjunctivism to a particular thinker at a particular time, unless you manage to hook onto one of the like great thinkers that gets cited from, you know, all, all the time, uh, people are just going to see Nyaya as, oh, this is just reducible to this one particular view at this right. one particular period. Right, right. Where, and, and to be honest, uh, maybe to put this in a way that's inflammatory, Nyaya is far more important than any thinker here, like one, like any one thinker that you might want to latch onto because they're famous contemporarily. And so it's a disservice to be like, oh, they're doing what this person does, but they did it a long time ago in India. Well, I think that doesn't do justice to the importance and enduring relevance of these ancient thinkers. So again, I, I tend to think they're important as to, to build bridges. They're also important though, as you know, and, and I mean, our, our, our mutual teacher, Stephen Phillips, has done good work to defend the way in which philosophical training is, is crucial to understand ancient Indian thinkers, not just philological or historical training. And I, th I think I'm incredibly lucky to have had a pretty significant training in Western thought, contemporary Western thought, but also historical, because it does allow me to see certain, you know, to cut at the joints, so to speak. And uh, so it, it's, it's an ongoing negotiation, but uh, yeah. Well, let's, yeah. let's, let's try and do that a little bit here with the, the ideas of, you said disjunctivism was the one, and then you said a sort of pragmatic approach. Maybe, can you unpack that a little bit in light of these core topics of Nyaya, especially sure. epistemology? And, let's start with the pragmatic yeah. stuff. Okay. Because it's, it has an important place, but it's also it also is not everything. So this is one of the things that struck me when I in that paper that I was mentioning that I wrote that kind of set me on the tra trajectory of thinking about Batsyayana as a in his comprehensive totality is that Batsyayana is very consistent in articulating a view that um, why is epistemology important in the first place? Why is epistemic refinement, you might say, important? Why is it important to identify and understand from a kind of user's perspective, the sources of knowledge that we rely on both in pra practical and theoretical sorts of concerns? It's because we rely on a proper understanding of reality in order to navigate it and achieve the, uh, the goals of life. And he's very, he, he's consistently comes back to this point in the Bashya. In fact, there's a, there's a section um, in the first chapter uh, when, it, when it's unpacking the so-called uh, parts of an inference in its totality, what some scholars have called like the Nyaya syllogism or something like that. And he, uh, he, the sutras, or excuse me, he talks about 
candidates for w- what are the proper parts of an in, of of formal investigation. And he looks at some that are at, were out there in his time that he says, well, they're not really part of the investigation, but they're important. So things like identify, like uh, doubt itself. Doubt itself is crucial to investigation, but it's not officially part of the kind of formal machinery that you would then have to identify when you're making a case. So, so in and other words, just let me put that back to you. Is it the idea you can draw a conclusion through inference without doubting? Even though well, ordinarily, it, even if even if doubt often motivates inferential reasoning, it certainly doesn't all the time. But even if it does, his point is simply to say he he's trying to identify what's really the core of an investigative procedure that we would call like the parts that you put together. Basically, again, syllogism is a loose translation people had in the past, but something like that, right? Uh, where so what I'm getting at is simply this. He talks about jigyasa, which is uh, curiosity, right? Uh, and he says, why would we investigate some topic in the first place? Well, because we once we've understood it properly, we then know whether we should pursue it, be indifferent to it, or avoid it. Very basic, right? Very a, a somewhat crude typology of our responses to it. But again, it's just reaffirming his waves of nesting epistemological practice, why do, why do we care in the first place? Because we want to achieve the goals of life. So coming back then to the pragmatic question. So this is something that is a big picture uh, approach to epistemology. Now, he uses it specifically, and this is something I've tried to make a big deal of in, in my work. He This is really a, a crucial part of the response to skepticism, in this case, in the second chapter, where we find in the second chapter of the Nyaya Sutra, uh, a skeptic puts forth a dilemma. You guys, you Nyayikas, you, you, you Nyaya philosophers, identify these pramanas, they're called, or, or, or knowledge sources, these, these, um, these, uh, Procedures or tools that reliably, so uh, Nyaya thinks, generate knowledge, perception, inference, analogy, and testimony. Well, when you when you go about trying to say, well, this is perception or this is inference, or go about identifying it, how do you justify that, right? And that that now that just sets off a dilemma. You're either going to now have an infinite regress, where for at every step the skeptic is going to say, well, how do you justify that? Or you just have to posit something, some, some source of knowledge in the first place. And then basically you're just pretending that you're engaging in rigorous critical thinking because you started with an assumption. Now in his commentary, this is part of his work as a commentator, he adds two more lemmas. And these two lemmas with the first two end up matching very closely the great Buddhist skeptic Nagarjuna's critique of Nyaya. And to explain those lemmas would take a long time, but in effect, he just unpacks two more options that uh, a, a realist or whatever, or a Nyayika might want to say, this is how we justify knowledge sources. So what Vatsyayana ultimately says is, now this is my way of speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing and unpacking, but that 
We have a default entitlement to apparently true cognition. Why? Because the whole point of this is to guide action. And if our approach to epistemology stultifies us from the outset, we've made a remarkable mistake. Now, again, this is a bit of, if you want to go further into that, I'm happy to, but that's where the pragmatism ties to default entitlement to apparently true cognition. It comes up in other contexts, one of which is, which I maybe we'll get to later, but one of which is uh, his, his basic logical theory and whether or not he actually makes a mistake when he's translating uh, uh, certain, let's just say for the sake of discussion now, certain conditionals into their equivalents. That my and frankly, I my reading of him as seeing that the 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 rules that govern inference, for example, when you see billowing dark clouds overhead, you infer it's going to rain. He thinks that's a good inference, right? But it's an inference that. Well, what do you want to get to that later? Well, <laughs> let me just say, let's let's put a pin in that, and we'll follow yeah, yeah, up yeah, af yeah. after yeah. after sure. we get to the we'll disjunctive. Why we'll right. come back well, to this? Good, good, good. Uh, so good. Yeah. So with with the kind of disjunctive approach. You know, there, one of the interesting things, and Nyaya is not alone in this. Uh, Nyaya here meaning like the the early school that I'm talking about. Um, but Vatsyayana distinguishes between like legitimate perception and pratyaksha abhasa, what looks like perception, but you're wrong. In that case, it would be something like. A, uh, illusion or hallucination. Um, but he also does that with inferences. So when you use a fallacy, when you employ a fallacy and you are fooled by that fallacy, you make a mistake in your reasoning, he says explicitly that's not actually inference, strictly speaking, because inference is defined as successful. What you're, engage what you're doing is uh, anumana abhasa or hetwabhasa, um, an abhasa is a semblance or a kind of pseudo thing. So that really struck me because uh, some scholars have said that, well, this obviously doesn't track experience. And I thought that's not, I, I didn't think that was charitable because uh, Vatsyayana throughout the commentary identifies mistakes we make in real time. And he knows that's navigating how to not make those mistakes and, and trying to hit the target um, uh, in terms of uh, epistemic practices is, is a crucial part of his concern. So it, it, I started thinking about the way in which really what he's just doing is defining his starting point in epistemological theorizing is the successful case, right? And then he's understanding misfires as deviations from that successful case. And how does that tie into the disjunctive stuff? Well, clearly in this case, it's, there's a disjunction. In other words, there's not one thing we call like uh, experience or co cognition that has like uh, good and bad variants. You could put it like that, but that's not really the right way to start for him. You don't start with the so-called highest common factor view. What you start with is veridical experience or veridical cognition. And then you understand um, error as a kind of um, deficiency 
that you can't even make sense of unless you already presuppose the legitimate case. That And where that comes out, so there's two major, although there's minor responses to skepticism, but there's two major responses to skepticism in the commentary. One is in the second chapter with respect to the skeptical regress. The other is with respect to uh, a very Cartesian sort of concern. Well, we could very well just be engaging in a massive hallucination. And how do you get out of that? How do you work your way out of that scenario? The insight of Atsyayana in that case um, is to say, is to, to recognize you don't grant the skeptical presuppositions and then work out of them if you think those presuppositions are wrong. And so he, he argues in a way that I find fascinating that the very notion of error is parasitical on, uh, on true, true cognition, um, much in the way that um, you, the, the idea that we might be dreaming is already informed by the sense that we can distinguish between waking life and dreaming life. So that's a very simple way to put it, but his arguments are fairly sophisticated, in my opinion, quite sophisticated. And so that's a way in which, so to my mind, he has both a pragmatic defense of tr of our initial starting point in cognitive life to be trust in apparently true cognition. The pragmatic defense we talked about, because what's the point of cognition, right, is to guide action. The theoretical defense are these arguments from parasitism which not only presuppose just disjunctivism, but the, the parasitical nature of error on truth or on true cognition. Um, that's a bit of an overview. We could go deeper yeah. into it if you prefer. Well, I, think that's, I think that's a great overview. And, and I think we can come back to the points you were starting to make about inference, because I want to talk a little bit about the epistemology chapter, and we can't go through all of the pramanas or all the ways of knowing, but I think inference is a pretty crucial one uh, for, for Nyaya philosophy. And you started to unpack a little bit what inference is, um, and then some of the issues in mapping this idea of inference onto some of our existing ideas about epistemology and logic, which I think is part of what you were um part of why we might think, oh, well, maybe he's, he's done something wrong here in his uh, approach to these conditionals. Um, so, so yeah, let's maybe start with what is inference here, basically, and then... So, in, in yeah. its most basic form, inference is something that happens in your own head, so to speak, where we are able to navigate inputs. Uh, we navigate the conceptual relationship between those inputs and certain outputs, which we are then justified in believing to be true. So the standard example of an inference, which Vatsyayana talks about in his introduction, is when you see billowing smoke in the distance and you now know there's fire. You didn't see the fire. Uh, for the sake of this example, someone didn't come up and say, oh my gosh, there's a fire, right? So there's no perceptual knowledge of a fire. There's no testimonial knowledge. But we all recognize that that's uh, again, bracketing special effects, which he didn't have to worry about in his day, things like that. We all recognize that you know that. You now know there's a fire. Well, how? Because the, in this case, perceptual cognition of billowing smoke has a deep conceptual tie with fire, and we are good at navigating that. So that's really in its most basic form what inference is. Now, um, 
when arguing with other people to make a case to either try to help them learn something or maybe to uh, convince someone who disagrees with you and is pushing back on you about something, what we do is we take that basic inference, but we then put it within a kind of argumentative machinery to help uh, establish that point. But really, the baseline thing happening, even in an adversarial argument, is saying certain indicators guarantee some output. Those indicators might be more robust, but let's say arguing about God or something, um, or let's say arguing about the self. So two of the, you know, some of the most important arguments in the Nyaya Sutra and the commentary, which are, uh, which are engaged with by contemporary thinkers, are arguments that there must be a self. We are not simply a bundle of cognitive events, uh, both diachronically and synchronically. There's something beyond individual cognitive or affective events, and that is this unifying thing that we call a self. And Yai says that self is irreducible. The attempt to argue for the self is simply the sort of input to output movement, but the inputs and the relationship with the output are much more sophisticated. But that's how an inference, it's just a, in a way, externalized inference for the sake of proving something to someone else. So that's a little start. Yeah. So what's the deep conceptual tie you were, you were mentioning between, for instance, smoke and fire? You said that there's a deep conceptual tie, and that's what allows us to infer the presence of fire on that distant mountain. Well, in a, in a sense, it, it's simply uh, repeat experience, which forms it. That's typically the way it's formed, not always. Um, what the Nyaya Sutra and Vatsyayana do is they have a fairly simple typology of, um, well, we can, we can reason from cause to effect, we can reason from effect to cause, and then we kind of have a grab bag of just things which seem to be correlated. Um, and so, right, so inferring that, well, there's billowing dark rain clouds overhead, and the, uh, you then infer f uh, that it's going to rain because of effect because you're reasoning from um, cause to effect. Whereas if you were to walk by a river that you often, let's say, uh, enjoy walking down its banks or aside, uh, alongside its banks, and you notice it's, it's like a torrent today, and it's, it's swollen much more than usual, you then infer from effect to cause that there must be some sort of rain upstream or something like that. So the, so Ultimately, though, that that threefold typology is Batsyayan is respecting the sutras. He doesn't always, when he's arguing throughout the text, try to reduce it to any one of those three. Mm -hmm. So, know. so this now that you set that up, um, maybe you could go back to what you were talking about with the. Uh, the logical error, the so-called logical error. Oh, okay, this sure. could get a little bit uh, nuanced, but the reason I wanted to go back to this is I think this is a good example of the sort of sort of thing that you've described yourself as trying to do in this guide, which is you're trying to look at the text, you're trying to unpack what Batsyayana is doing. You're also drawing our attention to contemporary scholarship interpreting the text, and you're also thinking about contemporary modern distinctions like contraposition, aversion. Sure, so. sure. Well, you know, that was a case where, you know, I really wanted to, to do something. It, it's a really interesting exercise to try to do something where 
you're trying to really bring the philosophical sophistication of a thinker to an audience where you want to bring them in. You're not presupposing expertise, but you're also trying not to make uh, just uh, smudge over uh, nuances. And you're also trying to, in effect, present the, the, the loci of scholarly dispute sometimes navigating it, sometimes just saying, here's the debate. Because I, I, I didn't want to, in every case, tell them, well, here's my opinion, because in some cases, I'm not sure. In other cases, I might have an opinion, but that's not necessarily something where I recognize brilliant scholars that I admire see something differently. So within the, t- within the book itself, let's say the five chapters of the book, I would occasionally arbitrate and explain why. But I really allowed myself in that appendix to go deep and say, okay, here's one issue that we're going to just go into because I think it's important and I think people have not really gotten to the heart of it. And so in that appendix, what I talk about is uh, something that – so Vatsyayana, the Nyaya Sutra itself talks about the way in which an inferential indicator or within an argument, a reason – can be put forth either in a positive or negative form. Now, um, after uh, Dignaga, the great Buddhist logician, um, for the most part, this uh, positive and negative form follows a kind of straightforward contraposition that we're used to in, in contemporary logic, right? If A, then B is equivalent to if not B, then not A. Now, Vatsyayana, while he's a sophisticated epistemologist, he's not the sophisticated logician that Dignaga is. Um, now that said, when he talks about this um, reversal or whatever, this um, he uses examples that would go like this. Um, if something is produced or created, then it is impermanent. And his translation then of the reversal, so to speak, is if something is not produced, then it is permanent or eternal. So it, probably the most heralded scholar of Indian philosophy in the last century, the great B.K. Matilal, all of our like <laughs> param guru in some way or another, um, he just kind of as an aside says, oh, Vatsyayana makes a logical mistake. And basically something like affirming the consequent or denying the antecedent, you know, and that's it. Um, and I remember reading that and just thinking about it at the time, thinking maybe it's just that, you know, but just kind of putting a putting that in brackets when I first read that statement by him in grad school. And then um, in the course of my engaging with Vatsyayana over the last decade, um, Brendan Gillen, a, a great scholar whose work I really admire, he had a paper where he tried to go more deeply into this. And basically, he argues that, well, yeah, Vatsyayana does make a mistake, but here's why. Because his notion for the, like, his notion of a paradigm form of reasoning is causal reasoning. And causal reasoning in India and in the Vaisheshika Sutra, and I point, I give, you know, I cite and I quote and I translate various passages. If you're trying to identify uh, the cause of B, the basic kind of reasoning that's there in Vaisheshika, in Vatsyayana, and in their kind of milieu is when you find B only happens in the presence of A, 
and it doesn't happen when A is not there, you can identify that A is a cause of B, right? Cause in this case, necessary condition really. But it's that sort of reasoning, if A then B, if not A then not B. So that was Gillen's interpretation and I, I found it illuminating, but what I, what I found, and this is exactly the sort of thing that to understand Vatsyayana, you can't just go piecemeal is, he has all sorts of discussions of these sort of translations throughout the Bashiya, throughout the commentary, in many cases in contexts that don't seem, they're not right there in the so-called portion on inference. And what I found is when he gives these translations, so here, here's one, right? Oh, with the one about, let's just use the one, if something is produced, then it's, uh, it's non-eternal. If it's not produced, then it's not eternal. He explicitly recognizes uh, uh, counterexamples, in this case, absence. An absence of something is generated, right? So if I destroy the mug that's holding my coffee, there's now an absence of that mug. There's an absence of that mug, let's say for the sake of argument, uh, that will never, it will never stop if I really pulverize it, let's just say. Um, and he says, well, yeah, in that case, something is created, but it's eternal. And he just says, that's true. But, but let's now clarify, like, really, let's bracket that because the rule holds when you're talking about positive things. When you're talking about positive things, that's a damn good rule. Okay. He looks at other rules. So the one that says, if you're to tell someone, look, um, uh, well, the one about rain clouds. So if I were to say to you, if there's no rain clouds, it's not going to rain. If I just say that to a young, to a kid, don't worry about rain. There's no rain clouds. He says, well, here's the, he would translate the reversal, so to speak, as if there are dark billowing rain clouds, then it's going to rain. That does not preserve validity if we're, if we're looking at conditionals. Now, is that just kind of his logical immaturity or something given the time? Well, he explicitly says there's exceptions to that rule. There's times where that rule doesn't obtain, but I'm not talking about those conditions. I'm talking about something that will help you go on a picnic. He doesn't say that. I'm saying that. So it seems to me he's very explicit that what he's offering are kind of heuristics, heuristics that if you can identify exceptions and bracket them, they're really good at guiding your reasoning and your decision-making in normal life. So this comes back to the pragmatic part, right? So I would just say that um, the interesting thing, and now this is a point where at the end of, if we're talking about that appendix, at the end, I come to like something which was a really innovative paper by a modern philosopher who has no engagement with Vatsyayana, um, where what, what they point out is you can have knowledge from reasoning that's actually strictly speaking invalid because when we're actually trying to navigate the world and engage in empirical reasoning what you need is reasoning that's good enough given the context so that's one of those fruitful cases where looking at Vatsyayana in his totality was he making a mistake logically well if you think what he's doing is trying to articulate a logic a propositional logic in this case of conditionals yeah he's making a mistake i don't think that's what he's doing uh, why? Well, looking at the totality of his work. 
and then you might say, oh, and here's something interesting, right? Yeah, there are people who have not, no, don't even think about Nyaya who recognize that when your goal is to govern choices in life, and now again, theoretical choices in some cases, like the absence stuff is really about theoretical issues, right? Whereas the rain cloud stuff is about, should I go out on a walk today? Um, these sort of heuristics are can generate knowledge as long as you're sensitive to counterexamples and you're able to bracket them as irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. And that, the paper you're mentioning is Roy Sorensen's paper. And I'm, he's at UT Austin now. So, uh, oh, it comes back I, yeah, unfortunately I think he, he did, didn't overlap with Steven. So he, he missed his chance to make the connection with Vatsyaya. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but, but yeah, so, so that's, that's a nice sort of, I think microcosm of the kind of thing that you're trying to do in this guide in terms of navigating the primary text, the scholarship and contemporary philosophy, because you're, you're, you're writing a guide, which is a guide to, for philosophers, for academic philosophers, and they're going to have all of these things in view. Different readers are going to have different things that they're interested in. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, that was very helpful. I think for the, the sake of time here, I don't want to try and sort of enumerate all of the sort of, uh, commitments of Nyaya or Vatsyayana or things like that. Maybe why don't you tell me what you think would be uh, useful to, to talk about that you would want people to know happens in the guide, for instance, chapters three and four, which we haven't really picked up on so sure. much. Sure. So, so I guess, let me say three things. One is not in chapter three and four, but it's going to be relevant. So what, what Vatsyayana is doing, which is historically very interesting, but also just normatively important in my opinion is he's taking this, uh, what at least at the time that he inherited kind of Nyaya or Nyaya Vaisheshika, this kind of collection of epistemology, metaphysics, and the rest. And he's saying that this is not just a grab bag of, of kind of philosophical holdings, they can all be united under the banner of anvikshiki or critical investigation. That to him, for him, Nyaya just is critical investigation. And so with that as the kind of governing ethos and governing principle of this school, we can then start to see that these dialectical categories like fallacies and Things like different types of debate. Some debates are truth-oriented. Some debates are simply for victory. Why are the truth-oriented ones better? Well, they can all be understood through this lens of, of critical investigation, which is important for every individual who wants to live well, but also for anyone who aspires to philosophical insight. So that's kind of like his governing vision. Now, that ends up... Uh, that's why... For example, when Nyaya in the second chapter, which we didn't really get into in the third chapter, has very sophisticated defenses of the self as a metaphysical category. Pressure was put on the notion of selfhood by a, a Buddhist philosophers who, in effect, would argue both on like temporal grounds that things don't last, whether they're physical things or even psychological things, uh, uh, or... Uh, in a kind of single, like synchronic snapshot, you might say there were bundle theorists, um, both again about external substances. And for Nyaya, the self is just a unique type of substance because it's a property bearer and it can co-locate properties, in this case, psychological properties. So what, what Vatian is doing when he's defending the self is 
it's not merely, in his opinion, a philosophical dispute that your life doesn't change when it's over. Why is selfhood important? Because Vatsyayana inherits and accepts and extols the contemplative practices inherited from like philosophers of yore that said meditative insight into the self is crucial to living the best life you can. And grounding yourself, you might say, in the deep self, as opposed to ephemeral fluctuating mental states, which are often distressing or often in response to stimuli that aren't necessarily touching the deep you, being able to go deep into the self is really important to live well. So the philosophical defense of the self, which for Nyaya has to do with its status in terms of something called pratisamdhana or synthetic cognition, uh, and the notion that we are able to have cross-modal cognition of the same object. Somehow or other, we can touch something, we can see something, recognize it as the same object through different modalities, which means that neither of those neither of those like parts of the bundle of what we are right now are enough to capture that totality of experience. By the way, these are super, super superficial summaries of what they're doing, but 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 that that concern to theoretically defend the self, in this case in chapter three, goes along with its defense of yogic practice in chapter four. And so what I find really compelling in Nyaya, among other things, is that Vatsyayana tries to argue that these things are are, are are coherently connected. They're not disparate and that um, they come together in important ways. If you want to engage in a life of contemplation, you need to be a rigorous thinker. Don't start with mistakes. Don't start with like mere enthusiasm devoid of reflection. And when you come up with obstacles, and this this is what's really crucial about the first three the first three his commentary on the first three sutras of chapter four. Um, he talks about something which is, in my opinion, under discussed in Nyaya scholarship. That cognition is not merely like on or off. You're right or you're wrong or you're doubtful. Let's say on off or doubtful. But he talks about ways where our our understanding of the world can be enhanced by reflecting on things we already know. We can have a qualitative increase in understanding, and that goes along with contemplative practice. Um, so to my mind, that's a fascinating place where the epistemology, make sure you got it right, make sure you can defend your views when it's criticized by people who are wrong but really smart, <laughs> in his opinion. Um, they go hand in hand with the axiological stuff about living well and yogic practice. Um, was that okay? Or yeah, no, that, that's great. And I think, um, it, yeah, I have lots of, lots of thoughts on that. We're, we're running, you know, I don't want to take up all your time, but one thought that I have here is in contemporary um, sort of academic philosophy, to the extent that people know Nyaya, I think they know about inference. Maybe they know about the self. Um, I think there's a sort of a, uh, an understanding of Nyaya maybe in part due to Matilal, which I think is great, which is, you know, these, these are sort of like the rigorous analytic philosophers of, of India, something like that, right? Right. Um, or, or at least when you look at like Buddhism and so-called Hinduism, if right. you're going to choose from the Hinduism side, right. go to Nyaya right. if you and, want something like intellectually credible exactly, or something. Exactly. Yeah, but sure. I think one thing that gets missed, maybe I don't think in, in, in your work or Stephen's work or, or anything, but I think when people 
think about Nyaya is there's such an emphasis on the epistemology. And I think the the way in which that, at least for early um, Nyaya, I think for sure, is embedded in these concerns about living well, living virtuously, freedom from suffering, right? I think a, a lot of a lot of people may think, well, the Buddhists are aiming to reduce suffering. Nyaya philosophers want to get good, valid, <laughs> uh, you know, logical inferences. And I think it's, it's, it's good to see how these things form a whole, both for Nyaya philosophy and for Buddhist philosophy. They have different conceptions of the good life and of how to remove suffering and its causes. But these for both of them are tied up in their epistemology, metaphysics and so on. Exactly. And that's why like the so-called Buddhist epistemologists uh, like Dignaga or Dharmakirti or going backwards a little bit, Basubandhu, um, it seems like people it's i don't know why this is but it's it's sometimes it it seems like it's easier for people to kind of say oh here's how what they're doing ties to the kind of their inheritance from the buddha right um now part of this is that i well i think there's a few reasons but but one thing that's interesting is vatsyayana in his introduction to this book says Hey, what's special about what we're doing is we're really concerned about methodology, about doubt, about resolving doubt. Because if we didn't do this, we might as well just be Vedanta. Like he he says Upanishads. And there's a long segment in the fourth chapter where he goes fairly deep into an analysis of the Upanishads. So I guess for Vatsyayana at least the way in which if you were to look at a Buddhist thinker, someone would give like one or two of the sermons of the Buddha, talk about momentariness, even though it's not really there explicitly, but talk about suffering, whatever, then go to Vasubandhu. You'd probably have to take some snippets from the Upanishads to do that, at least for Vatsyayana. Um, but I think you're right. I, I don't know why it's easier to do that with the Buddhists, but I do think for me, it's not about criticizing the mistakes of earlier thinkers because, again, people like Matilal or, or Mohanty, right, the great um, Jitendranath Mohanty, they were pioneering. And I think it's a disservice to them beat up on them because they couldn't make every nuance. But as I tried to do with my defense of Vatsyayana in his mistake, say, well, look, I do think they're wrong here. But, you know, but to quote the great Paul Woodruff, again, another Texas person, the difference between a great thinker and a marginal thinker is that even when a great thinker is wrong, it stimulates you. <laughs> right, right. And, and certainly I don't want to suggest that Matilaw was not concerned with the ethical implications well, of, well, let me or say, anything okay, like well, that. But it's actually, just mostly, I, but, when people but, but read Matilaw, there, there may be a lot of academic philosophers who are like really interested in the analytic stuff. They don't read yeah. his ethics and epics as much, but perhaps. No, but, but no, but let me say something. This is why... We have to be historians, not only of ancient India, but but in terms of the the the, the scholarship on India. Matilal was pushing back against a distortion of Indian thought that was widespread in his time. That was advanced not only by Westerners who were a little Orientalistic in their thinking, but also by Indian thinkers like Vivekananda, who wanted to say, "Here's what's special about India." Who all said this. India, what's cool about India is that we are really into non-discursive mystical experience. And Matilal was doing his best to say, there's a lot of brilliant philosophical work here, guys. And so he had to, maybe he had to push hard against that in ways where he was, now what, what, what that gives the luxury to people like you and me, or 
Phillips, our, our teacher, to then say, well, hey, guess what? Let's look at the rigorous philosophical work in tandem with the defense of mystical experience, where we now can kind of swim in that space because Matilal helped say, there's a space for so absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to put that little footnote. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a nice footnote. Maybe let's conclude with that footnote because I think that nicely situates um, what we're what you're sort of what you're doing and where you're trying to um, build on the sorts of things that Motilal has done. Um, certainly indebted to his work in in your book, but also looking um, sort of looking forward at other ways to engage with these texts. Um, in, in contemporary context. Maybe, why don't we conclude with this? What are you working on now, now that the book is... So out? now what I'm trying to do is, in a more uh, sustained way, look at some of the... Um, so the fifth chapter of the Nyaya Sutra is focused on dialectics, and it has two parts. The first part is on something called jatis, which are to totally oversimplify, because we don't have a lot of time, something like sophistical responses, and it maps those responses. The second half of the fifth chapter looks at what are called nigrahastanas, or defeat conditions, where if you are engaging in a competitive debate, even for about like theoretical issues, what are the things that disqualify you, like you messed up and you lose? So what I'm trying to do is look at those in relation to informal fallacies as we map them and, and try to uh, put them together. In the course of which, what I'm doing is I'm going back to the Nyaya Sutra, the main body of the text, and discovering how many of the core arguments that people think are the most important philosophical arguments are actually based on jatis or these sort of responses. So that's that's what I'm doing right now. Great. Thank you. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, uh, as always, Matt. And um, we'll have a link up to your book for folks who are interested in looking further into Vatsyayana's commentary and uh, your, your guide to it. And I appreciate your time. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it, Malcolm. Take care.